How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 165. Zeke, I'm still alive. <laughs> you are indeed still alive. Still alive and kicking. Yeah, yeah. Kicking ever so slightly. No. Um, so we're recording online remotely again for the... Uh, yes, the, we are. The first time consecutively. So we recorded our Gallipoli episode remotely when a good year mm-hmm. plus and then had to do last week and this week remotely but i am pretty confident we'll be back to normal next week so that's exciting yeah yeah no here's here's hoping right like uh it's been a big couple big couple weeks uh mm. you, you really have uh no excuse for not watching any films jake <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny you mention that because like i've generally just been inside i think it's a combination of things it's a combination of Obviously, you're feeling sick, you're isolated, you haven't, like, gone to work and done all those things, that yeah. you just kind of are never in the mood to watch anything, especially new. Like, I I just rewatched a ton of Breaking Bad last week, and I know that Better Call Saul is coming back next month, and everyone's excited, but it's like, I just wanted to watch something again, like, that I was comfortable with. So, I, yeah, I did... Yeah, totally fair. I'm... Yeah. I did catch quite a bit, like, at the last minute. But majoritively speaking, okay. I was just like not in the mood to watch anything. But um, yeah, it is what it is. No worries. Well, before we jump into what we watched in the last week, Jake, do you have a piece of film trivia for me before the film of the week? I do actually. So this is something I noticed. I was a little like thrown off because, of course, we're talking about Pan's Labyrinth this week, and neither of us have seen it. I actually had no idea. I was like, oh, this film's it's not in English. For some reason, I just assumed it was in English, but it's not. And um, mm-hmm. to comment on that, I actually found out while watching this film that Guillermo de Toro, of course, we're doing him director of the week, director's corner, actually sat down and sort of wrote and helped translate the subtitles himself uh, because of the bad experience he had with the subtitles on a previous film, specifically The Devil's Backbone, his 2001 film. Um, I believe that was the one where he was... Like, oh, no, not again. I need to, like, be involved in this because, like, he wants the subtitles to be mm. accurate and, and add to the experience, which uh, I really appreciated that. Yeah, clearly this film was a labour of love because my trivia fact also plays into um, clearly his need to make this film uh, very impactful, at least in his career and the messages within it. Um, he actually gave up his entire salary, including back-end points to see the film become realised. To this day, he still believes it was worth it. Wow. Yeah, that that doesn't so. surprise me, but based on some of the stuff, I read a little bit about him and obviously seen some of his films, but the thing that surprised me the most was his filmography. There's a, there's a lot of, like, big sort of tentpole Hollywood films on here for someone who, mm-hmm. when I think of Guillermo del Toro... I think of, you know, this film and Shape of Water and all of his more personal films. Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all that he makes a lot of those big films and then spends, like, his entire salary on making the small films. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. So, yeah. Now, Zeke, do you reckon this film would be on the 1,100 films you must watch before you die poster? That it usually is behind you. Now it, Now it's not even in your vicinity. You've disappeared. No, I'm not even in the Matrix. No. Of it. <laughs> no. Is this film on the poster, Zeke? 
I would probably say it is. I think it's very fair that it probably would be on the poster. I was shocked. It is not on the poster. That's a bit of a surprise. Yeah, I was very shocked. Um, I I definitely think it belongs on that list for for a myriad of reasons. But yeah, I even well before I saw the film, I was like, it's surely on there, right? <laughs> mm. Especially if you're talking about his career, I feel like this is sort of his flagship film mm. when discussing him as a director. Yeah, it's definitely the one I hear people talk about maybe the most. I mean, I guess Shape of Water, but that that's more recent. But yeah, I see a lot of people always point to this film. You're right. For sure. Well, before we jump into our discussion on that in the second half of the show, Jake, what have you caught in the last week? So I did catch a few things. I'll quickly talk about a new show that I've started. I've always wanted to watch a show, and I finally noticed, like, oh, it's on Disney+. Plus. Awesome. I can actually watch it. Malcolm in the Middle. I'm finally sitting down and watching all of Malcolm <laughs> in the Middle. <laughs> For uh, no surprise, I just want to see Brian Cranston and his earlier work on the show. Um, but I really dig the show so far. I've only seen the first few episodes of the first season, so I'm not very far into it at all. But there were a few things I was surprised by. It, it, it's very, like, obviously it, it premiered in January 20, 2000. So it obviously has a lot of that mm-hmm. sort of 90s punk rock anti-authoritarian attitude. And that's obviously all the characters like Malcolm and, and his brothers. And they all sort of have that. And a lot of the uh, it, it, that culture is in there with him and all the kids at the school and all the bullying and teasing. And, you know, a lot of boys just sort of, you know, climbing over each other and, you know, sticking it up to mum and that kind of attitude. But I love the way it's portrayed in the camera as well. The cameras are sort of like always flinging around and moving and it feels a bit like a music video, very punk rock-esque. I love some of the shots that just like swoop right up to, into a cam- uh, character's face and it's just so uncomfortable. It reminds me of, um, I think it's Bruce Gilden who does like really striking street photography where he just like runs up to random people in the street and just flashes them with a camera and like that he would sell those photos and, and people get really angry about that. But that it reminded me of that, just like that really, you know, careless attitude um so i think the show does that really well and again i was surprised by the effort because when you think of sitcoms you know, especially like ones with laugh tracks this doesn't have a laugh track but i think of frankly very lazy boring uh, camera work because it's all about you know mm-hmm. making the show sort of not the least amount of resources but just making them and pumping them out really quickly and i'm glad watching the show it's like oh wow no there's a lot of really cool like transitions between scenes and the way they use the camera and like, oh wow, they've got this bird's eye view shot through the top of the house and just like a lot of things like that. I'm like, that's really cool. I'm, I'm glad they put the effort into doing that. But yeah, I'm really enjoying it, Malcolm in the Middle. It's, um, yeah, it's going to be a new journey for me, which is exciting. Um, now, Zeke, you're, yes. probably, you're probably curious to hear about my thoughts on the new Pixar film, Turning Red. <laughs> I am indeed. Very curious. Can you give us a brief overview as to what the film's about? So, in a lot of ways, it's just inside out. (laughs) It is about a preteen girl who is sort of going through what we assume to be an analogue of puberty. um, And it's about regulating emotions and and that kind of thing. It's it's very much inside out. It's just the execution's very different and and sort of the... um, the way that's portrayed is very different. And I, it's no secret, Zeke, I have been very poo-poo on Pixar lately. We did episodes critical. on... Critical, exactly. 
we did episodes on Onward and Soul. Uh, we didn't do one on Luca, but that one in particular, I was just like, I don't get why people like this film. It's It just feels so mm-hmm. rushed. I don't care about any of the characters. It's also, like, fleeting. And I reckon this is probably my favorite Pixar film since uh, Coco is turning red. Mm-hmm. So, but I was joking about it being basically inside out, but it's about, you know, this young girl uh, sort of has this, it reminded me a little bit of um, like the farewell and Minari, these things that sort of infuse the Western and Eastern cultures. You have this girl of Asian descent, but lives in Canada. It's 2002. So it was a little bit of a period piece. In fact, that's actually when Better Call Saul takes place. So there you go. The same sort of semi-period piece going on there. Mm. Um, but They it's take bit... place in the same universe. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, uh, Turning Red has a little bit more colour in its universe, which <laughs> I was quite funny. But this comes from the director of Bow, which I think everyone remembers this, watching Incredibles 2, and that really weird short film that played ahead of Incredibles 2. Um, mm-hmm. which I think everyone remembers the moment they saw it, like what in the world like there's the food and eating the food and it comes to life and what's going on so the director Doomy Shi um, this is her first feature so they've obviously she was obviously re- really re- renowned work for Bao and is now given the opportunity to do this film and I, I think I'm going to say this this might be really uh, not controversial but I think this might be Pixar's most like expressive or I think it's from, like, a director's vision, this is their best film. Like, I can totally see Doomy She, the director, and her voice in this film. And I can't actually mm. say that about any other Pixar film. I love Ratatouille and, and Up and Toy Story 3. But, you know, maybe with the exception of Pete Doctor, I couldn't really tell you how the directors put a super personal spin onto those stories. And this one, a thousand percent, I can feel that. And just like the attitude it has and, and the fact that from memory, it's the only Pixar protagonist that's like breaking the fourth wall, talking to the camera, is sort of self-aware about that. Um, and then the animation sort of reflects that as well, where there's lots of little hints of like anime animation and the fact that the girls, like their eyes get all sort of starry when they see like the boy bands. And, and that's one of the other things I liked about this. Some people complain that like, oh, this feels t- like too specific of an, a target audience because you know it's about preteen girls in 2002 thirsting over a boy band and i actually really like that i like the specificity of that i'm like yeah i'm a you know mid-20s white guy i'm not going to relate to this on the same level but i can still appreciate <laughs> the the voice that's coming through in the movie um i really really dig that and i love the style and i thought the storytelling was much better than in say for Luca there's little things here and there well I think it's pretty on the nose sometimes with the dialogue some weird editing choices but like very forgivable compared to something like Luca where I just could not care less about the characters of that movie and here I was much Mm. more invested in the dynamic especially the mother-daughter dynamic and and I think it just reminds me and we laughed about this the other day of like ah a girl turns into a panda what a dumb idea for a movie Pixar always do this though they always, the dumbest premises always end up being like their best works. Like, oh, look, they the put balloons on the house and it flies away and ends up being like their best film. <laughs> <laughs> they always nail the most ridiculous log lines. And I just, I really appreciate that. But yeah, I like that. I like the score. I like the color. Um, I feel like the only thing I will say, I feel like Pixar's sort of moving away from 
sort of their focus on hyper detail. Like when you watch The Incredibles, you're like, oh my god, look at the, look at the stitches on their clothes, or like look at the gutter of water in Toy Story Four. Like look at these like amazing little animation tweaks. I feel like Pixar are focusing less on those lately, and the character models in particular just kind of look the same. Um, which mm-hmm. is a minor nitpick. I I think they're starting to sort of blend in together visually, which I'm a little worried about. Bit of an MCU thing, but um, but no, I was I very much enjoyed Turning Red. I recommend it. No worries. Well, that uh, and uh, everything else you watch this week is in relation to the film of the week, correct? Indeed, it is. No worries. Well, I haven't obviously. I've been very busy with uh, the old university, but I have managed to pretty much pedal through the whole second season of Succession. Oh, beautiful! I'm sitting on I think uh, episode eight or nine. Last time I checked the episode, I think it's called Argister. Ah, uh, yeah, yep. yep. Um, and um, yeah, look, I'm really enjoying the second season. I think it. You know, it's obviously. You're only really as good as your first season. I did enjoy the first season, but I, I do think the second season is really taking it to another level. Uh, we're really starting to really look into the power dynamic between, well, particularly prominently three of the, the kids. Um, you know, Connor's sort of just there more as a, <laughs> a comic relief. Um, but uh, I am really enjoying particularly um, Sarah Snook's uh, sort of push to the... the the front of uh, more primordial cast, you know, like primary casting, mm. which um, which is really really awesome. It's a it's a good show. It's a good show. It kind of walks this crazy line of being sort of intense and at the same time uh, funny, which I find really interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the funniest shows. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it makes you laugh, but it still has that weight and gravitas there, and I find that really quite entertaining. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's the, I've definitely enjoyed the second season more, for sure. Yeah, sweet. It, yeah, I, I've, I've talked about very controversially, I still think the first season actually might be my favourite, but that's a very, that's not a common opinion at all. People love season two, people love season three, so um, now I'm glad that it's picking up The music's up really good. Oh my god, the yeah. music's incredible. It's in my it's just like half the the score has just stuck into my like repeat track on Spotify. So like I <laughs> I just have like a random music um I'm trying to figure out. Let me actually pull it up on it. It's like some of the bands that I listen to that are just like randomly interrupted by succession music. <laughs> <laughs> so like yeah, the National Parks have been listening to Madness lately, which uh certain somebody has got me onto that band recently. So yeah, good stuff. There I got you go. of course Cat and Byron there as well. But then randomly it would just it would just come in with those little strings from succession. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean it's it's it is wildly uh, entertaining as a show. Um and I'm very much looking forward to having Season two in the bag by next week, and then probably be well into season three at that point. Um, I found myself watching. I watched four or five episodes just yesterday alone. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's happening, folks. <laughs> yeah. Really got really got its it's got its talons into me now. Yeah. I will quickly say before we move on to your point about how you you love that Shiv sort of getting a lot of the limelight this season. Um, one of the things that. Uh, this is before season three even started um was almost friend of the show steven's like prediction 
is that the first season focuses on sort of Kendall's race and then the second season focuses on Shiv's and he was very much correct in assuming that the third season is going to have a lot more Roman Roy which I sent you that <laughs> I sent you that um it was a Twitter thing but it was of the think the Critics Choice Awards when Kieran Culkin actually they both won him and Sarah Snook won best supporting actor and actress for season three I think today or yesterday um which is incredible they, they absolutely deserve it but when he goes up to the panel and then no one has any questions. He's like, oh, no one has any questions. All right, well, screw you. Goodbye. And he just walks off. (laughs) Oh, classic. I love it. Well, um, like you said, Zeke, the only other thing I've seen this past week, um, all that I have left to talk about is Guillermo del Toro films. Um, So what do you reckon? Do you think we should jump right into our director's corner? I do believe we are going to move into our director's corner. But Jake, what are we watching? (laughs) Let's speak of the show, Zeke. We're watching Pan's Labyrinth. her tyrannical stepfather in a new home with her pregnant mother, 10-year-old Ophelia feels alone until she explores a decaying labyrinth guarded by a mysterious fawn who claims to know her destiny. If she wishes to return to her real father, Ophelia must complete three terrifying tasks. I guess guess all three of them are pretty terrifying. The first one's not terrible, I guess. There's a big frog. I mean, it's pretty terrible. You gotta go inside the frog. I, I guess so. <laughs> you, gotta get, you gotta get jaws eaten by I the guess, frog. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> the second one is definitely, I would say, the most terrifying. Oh my goodness, yeah. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a scene right there. So, Zeke, Pan's Labyrinth. Neither of us have seen it until, well, until now. And, um... Mm-hmm. What, sure. what, what are your thoughts? What's your, what's your immediate reaction? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one because um, this film, you know, I, I think we've a lot of people have seen the scene with the with the pale man. Mm. Um, it's it's definitely the one that's played a lot, and um, I definitely found myself finishing this film and and sort of trying to sort of just um, grasp what I'd really just watched. It was definitely. Um, the most surrealistic or, or the, the term that's coined that best parallels this film is magical realism. And I'll, I'll touch on that in a little bit, but um, this is probably the, the most accurate um, film in terms of encapsulating a true traditional folklore or fairy tale. 
that you know removed all of the shiny coats of of Disney, Disneyfying, <laughs> which is funny that we were talking about you know Disney Pixar first half of the show, but yeah, obviously you know when you like read like when they they discuss like real brothers Grimm tales and such, they're actually quite uh, well like I said grimace tales. So what we're encapsulating is, is sort of a child's perception and, and love for these tales and sort of how she uses it to mentally cope with the sort of Spanish Civil War, the world around her. And she sort of, it gets to a point where we don't know if it's necessarily Ophelia's psychological uh, depiction of the world or it's actually grounded magical realism um, and these worlds run in parallel to one another. Um yeah, that's interesting because you're right. Without jumping too like deep into it, there are two specific scenes that come to mind in terms of when the fantasy um, sort of interacts with the real world or a character other than her um, sees something from this magical side of the world. And one time they interact with it and they, they acknowledge it and then the other time they don't. They actually don't see it. Um, so yeah, it's, it is kind of vague on how much is this is real going on in her head mm. or well, yeah, which is, I, for me, this being a, a Guillermo de Toro film of which admittedly I haven't seen a lot of, I saw Shape of Water when it came out, it's been a long time, but I remember, I remember loving it. I thought it was excellent. And then today I watched Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth, uh, just to get a little bit of mix because I know Hellboy sort of like, okay, it's more of a comic book superhero esque sort of in the in the realm of Spider-Man, X-Men, you know, early noughties um, time period. So I wanted to get a bit of a range for Guillermo's films. And I think, for me, knowing that he directed this, okay, there's definitely an element of, not realism, but, like, I believe it. I believe that that, yeah, for sure. that magical world does exist. Um, but for me, I, I don't want to cut you off too much but I think I was with you in terms of I needed to digest my thoughts on this film a little bit um, and it was actually one line at the very very end of the movie there's one line that almost like made everything click I was like oh I think mm-hmm. I get how all these pieces come together because up until the very end I actually kind of frankly didn't know why other than like juxtaposing like this fantasy era with this like super grim realistic depiction of you know the spanish civil war and and people just dying violently over and over again and just like grim subject matter and other than that juxtaposition it took me the entire film to kind of get what it was saying but we'll we'll get into that Mm -hmm. a bit later i reckon i definitely think on a surface level the film is trying to basically encapsulate child escapism in the events of a traumatic uh world um obviously you know, it's Ophelia's perception of her father is a stepfather is so um, polarizing to her mother, and it's it's quite a grim scenario they they find themselves in with, you know, Vidal being this this fascist um, leader of a you know a group who's hunting you know insurgents and and believes in this very clean, clear cut uh, fascist viewpoint and. Um, Ophelia is this this rebellion this uh, within the, the family, and I really feel like the fantasy escapism, um, sort of, uh, is the way of her escaping that that reality. But at the same time, 
then why, you know, it definitely follows that posing question. Then why is her escapist reality so grim? Why, what, and that could then lead to, well, the fantasy world is really just mirroring the, the world that she's in. And it's mm. just her way of, of psychologically rationalizing the world that she's in to, to ground it to a world of, of understanding within herself. She is obsessed with these fairy tales and these folklores. She's, you know, multiple times holding books that are like folklore and, and such. And this is her way maybe of, of grounding and understanding sort of a much darker Narnia, really. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, a way more grounded, realistic and, and quite grim Narnia um, chronic, you know, like the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe mm. where, you know, you have four kids who are sent to a home and, and go to a world where they can escape the grim realities of the war. Um, and obviously, you know, the film that came out roughly around the same time too um, was drastically, you know, softer with the themes of the time but both are trying to kind of insinuate the same sort of thing. Yeah, I I, I, I'm kind of with you. And it's funny because I think that's a great example. And the example that I actually was thinking of actively, which, yeah, came out, I think, only two years after this film did, was The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, Um, which Mm -hmm. not not I think that is probably a better example. But what I was thinking of Boy in Striped Pajamas is this idea of like looking at it from a kid's perspective where there almost is two worlds, um sort of intercross they eventually intercross towards the end but to your point about first off her as a character like yeah she has a bit of a a childlike innocence with this whole thing the fact that when she first sees that bug come out of the tree she calls it a fairy even though it very clearly doesn't look like a fairy it looks (laughs) a lot more like kind of creepy and bug-like than that um so she's sort of putting like this coat of paint over her own vision of what she's seeing um, sort of these rose-tinted um, glasses, I suppose. But then the actual myst- uh, mysteries, the actual um, sort of mythical, magical side of it, you're right, is also very dark and very grim and very scary. Uh, but I think that's just yeah. a note to the fact that when we actually read these fables and fairy tales that are for children, there's some bloody twisted stories in that. <laughs> Pinocchio, yeah. I mean, that uh, slightly a different example, but like when we talked about Pinocchio last year... That film smessed. That film was so messed up. <laughs> but it's presented for children. A lot of those Disney films sort of follow that same suit um, of being actually quite dark tales traditionally and have sort of been uh, repurposed over time or, or reiterated in a, in a way that is more tolerable to kids of the time and adjusting space and such. And it's definitely, you can see Del Toro has taking inspiration from things like Alice in Wonderland and, and these more traditional grimace tales. And it ends up being this amalgamation of, of mythical creatures that are almost feel completely and utterly original, but it's because a lot of them have such obscure roots and origins that I feel like mm. this, this film is so meticulous by nature. The, the editorial cuts where they do these uh, match and slide cuts to make reality oh, the trees, and the magical yeah. realm almost seamlessly the same place is is so clever the fact that he did sit down and he was the one who did you know help doing the english translation means that the messages we're receiving through that are so um close to what the director envisions and not just a, a lackadaisical translator 
Yeah. Um, and I think that that's truly, uh, truly fascinating, really, um, and really powerful, and really shows how much this, how important this film was to him. Yeah, and and it I, right. that's it. And I think you know, like, you, well, the, going back to your fact, I like we're just bouncing back off each other's facts now. Where it's like, yeah, he put so much of his own money in to get this film finished. He was very much invested in this personal film, and I think this was the first mm-hmm. film he made after Hellboy. I think he went straight from Hellboy in 2004 to doing this in 2002. I will talk about Hellboy momentarily, about how sort of visually and, and thematically those films connect. But you're right, you could definitely feel his... Um, there was an urgency for him to tell this story and to really mix up the, the fantastical and like the grim, dark um, sort of reality of what else is happening and, and crisscrossing those. I think with what I what I liked as well Yavophilia who she's actually quite entranced by this idea of being the princess like obviously there's a bit of hesitancy there I mean that's part of the hero's journey I guess you have to have that hesitancy before you you know jump into that new world and it's when she sees she's got a bit of a birthmark that's like I think like a half moon um on the back of her shoulder and then you know her mum saying like I'll put this dress on you know you would look like a princess and she's sort of entranced by this idea of what a princess looks like, which to the mother is like, oh, mm. you know, this this clean, pristine girl, and she's you know bathed and dressed nice, and is presenting in that manner. But then the actual quest that she goes on, you know, as I guess a real princess of this mythical world, is really dirty and and disgusting. And she's climbing through these trees and getting all like mud and vomit and spew and, like all thrown at her. And it's I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition as well. I was like, this is how dirty she gets <laughs> as a character. Yeah. And and how that that conflict bleeds into her relationship with Vidal and her family slowly deteriorating as she becomes more, you know, as she begins this this journey from transitioning from one realm of existence to the other. Mm. Um, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. The only other film I've caught from um, well, I've caught Shape of Water, which, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll have an own episode dedicated to that sometime. Sure. Yeah. Um, is a uh, Pacific Rim. Which is kind of oh, very good. Um, um, a film that sort of actually does have connecting sort of directorial thematic connections. I, I definitely find that you know he he takes the one through line between all three is he takes these fantastical myth mythological or larger than life scenarios and he finds a way to ground them in realism and you know Pacific Rim is is hokey and cheesy in its writing but it's deliberately intended that way um and the reason i think the film works is because of things like what he does with the camera the fact that he he solely shoots um these big fights from a human eye perspective you know he's what you know mm. we're watching these big behemoth of rocket uh, uh, these uh, fighting and and a lot of the the scenes are shot from the perspective of a human on on the street, just to get that that size and scope. And then there'll be things like there are some really cool nifty sort of um, moments with action shots that uh, interact with the world. Um, and there's some amazing behind the scenes stuff of how they use miniatures and stuff. And it's such a well thought out film for such a you know, a reasonably dumb concept, admittedly. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. I mean, it's 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 an ode to the 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 Japanese sort of Godzilla films, but it's it sort of tonally knows what it is, unlike 
uh, you know, when Pacific Rim came out, the new Godzilla remake came out, and that was tonally trying to take that dark, gritty tone. It missed the mark completely. Had the same play, it was plagued with the same problems that the Transformer films were plagued with. Um, that they were just trying to take themselves too seriously, mm. um, or walk that line of juvenile uh, humor versus uh, taking themselves too seriously. Whereas this one was hokey and dumb, but um, made you know obviously held its own when it came to the actual uh, things that mattered, i.e., its action, and such. Very John Wick esque for its own respective area. Okay, um, and I really like the use of color in both of the films and all three of the films, like the, whether, you know, how saturated some of his frames are are fascinating. Yeah. There's two, there are two takeaways from what you were saying that I want to sort of comment on because first off the fact that Guillermo del Toro even does a film like Pacific Rim and I I haven't seen it, but I've seen footage of it and I know it's very bombastic and a lot of, like you said, it's a, a big dumb action film in a lot of ways. Um, when I read into Guillermo del Toro, it actually talks about the relationship he has with Alfonso Cuaron and then Iteritu, in Inuitu. Jeez, I can't even say the name. Um, but they basically jokingly say that they're like the free amigos of cinema, which I always thought was, that's a great quote. <laughs> but when you figure mm. those other two directors, like we think of films like Birdman and The uh, the Revenant or like, you know, for Alfonso Cuaron, we did um, Roma. Children of Men and Children and of Roma. Men, yeah. Yeah, um, that was our second episode. We did that. So you you think, uh, and it's not to say that Guillermo del Toro doesn't have his personal films. We're covering one of them right now, one of his personal films. But out of those three, he feels like the most commercial. The fact that he does go out mm-hmm. of his way and makes Hellboy and, and Pacific Rim and films like that. It's just interesting because you're right. As long as he understands sort of the difference between those films. And I my guess is Pacific Rim made money. It did all right at the box office. I did. Well, I mean, he got a sequel. Yeah, there you go, exactly. A sequel wasn't directed by him, and it drastically... And then it bombed the sequel. So oh. that's, that was the thing. I, I think because the sequel missed what made the first one so fun. Like, mm. it's not a... It's not a... Like, it's not a prolific thought, thought-provoking film. It's it's just knows what it is, you know. It gets Idris Elba in a role where Idris Elba can shine as this sort of cheesy person cheesy actor he's which is good casting you know it's it's smart casting and i think collectively it's just a a very independence day-esque film and knows why it does it like it could be easily accompanied with the independence day film and why those films work whether as their sequels can tonally miss the mark completely yeah for sure no it's good yeah you have a director sort of understands what each individual film, based on whether it's a tentpole, big blockbuster, or personal film, needs to be for its audience. Yeah, considering your audience is really good. The second thing that I took away from what you said earlier, you talk about the camera and how what, what makes Pacific Rim interesting is that they keep the camera down on a very human perspective where we're looking up at these behemoths from a distance. Um, and the camera's not doing anything that isn't like totally unrealistic. But what's funny is that both um, Hellboy and this film, and Pan's Labyrinth, do plenty of things with the camera that are sort of beyond the realms of what you would consider realistic. So it's interesting he does split those up because I specifically figure the scene when Ophelia's telling a story to her unborn baby brother and the camera goes inside the womb and we actually see the fetus. And then as she's talking Mm -hmm. about like the dangerous 
or poisonous fawns as the camera pulls out and we're now going above this mountain it's sort of doing this whole trickery and then goes right back through the bedroom window and again hellboy has very similar moments either where the camera's doing all sorts of crazy tricks to sort of aid the story so it's interesting that again he's doing two very different things with the camera in two very different films yeah i think it's because that's where you know obviously you've got comic book uh, realism where you're allowed to have mm-hmm. a more ethereal camera because the camera can be wherever the comic book pain wants it to be to an extent and um there's definitely that mindset there and i think in this film is it's the magical realism side it's the camera doesn't have to have a grounded realism and sense because it's magical it's it's mm-hmm. not a tangible force of nature and um whereas in pacific rim though in the realm of sci-fi they want you to believe that these robots exist i think and there's that level of realism there there's no floating camera for the best action angles there's it's very much that oh well this is a movie about these big robots that exist and Mm. although it's hokey and dumb we're not going to um, and I think I honestly think Independence Day does a very similar thing with its camera. It keeps it very grounded in realism for a very well fictionalized plot. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the other thing I guess Guillermo is really known for is obviously his visual effects, prosthetics, creature designs, all of those things. I mean, every film that I've seen of his, granted only three of them has this to an extent. I did laugh because Hellboy does have... I'll get the name of the character really quickly. Um, Abe Sapien, who is... You know, the the idea is that this creature was born the day that Lincoln died, and it's almost like a passing of, like, the spirituality of it. But it also just looks exactly like the fish monster from The Shape of Water, which I thought was <laughs> quite funny. They had the Toro uh, shared universe. Um, but this film obviously has a lot of different creatures and monsters. You talk about the pale man. Um, obviously, I forget the name, but the creature who sort of is guiding her through the journey the entire time. The fawn. The fawn, yeah. Um, look at that. I keep using the word fawn. I like it. Yeah, no, there's just all sorts of interesting creature designs. And, and a, a lot of it, I like that a lot of it is tan. Um, okay, i got to say this. I kept using the word tangential last week when talking about the Batman. And I meant tangible. <laughs> I kept saying the wrong word over and over and over again. I got really annoyed at myself. But, like, like you can touch it. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, it looks like yeah. you can reach out and touch it. Like, that's how good the that's, visual that, effects that would are. Be ta- that would be tangible, yes. Yep, yep. I, I kept saying the wrong thing. over. I said tangential. It was like, oh, on on another note. <laughs> um, yeah, but, like, I, I, I really love the way all the creatures in that look. I feel like he has an eye for, um, first off, the imagination behind it. I think it's really fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. And you kind of need that for a film like this. It's so mythical and you need those creatures. Um, I mean, the Pale Man, you mentioned him first. Like, that is such an iconic design for a creature. It's derived from apparently Japanese folklore. Oh. There you go. The eyes with the... Or the hands with the um the eye slits, that kind of thing, or... Yeah. It's uncomfortable. Eyes don't belong <laughs> in your hands. <laughs> No, that, that's when I first saw the film. I was like, this isn't very realistic. His eyes should be on his face. <laughs> Easily, um, like, one of the most tense horror scenes that you could create. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's... It's funny, because you mentioned that. We both watched that in class from memory. We watched that specific scene. 
And that's all I knew about Pan's Labyrinth was that one scene. So I thought it was just a straight up horror film. And actually sitting down watching the whole film, it's like, okay, this is actually, there's a lot more to it. It's not just a straight up horror film. That's probably the most horrifying scene, at least in terms of like creatures and the, and the mythology behind it. There's some very shockingly violent scenes between humans as well mm. in this film, um, which we can get into. I mean, that initial scene when, obviously it's, it's showing how dangerous that captain is. Like, how much of a, a violent threat he is. Right, exactly. Just hammering that guy in the face. And it's just the camera just holds on it. And we just see it over and over. It's like, holy crap, this is really hard to look at. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't pull any punches. No, well, he certainly didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Well, you you tell me, Zig, what's... Obviously, that scene with the Pale Man's it's sort of horrifying because of almost like the body horror aspect and the fact that I was like chasing this little girl and the way the scene's choreographed is excellent. But Mm. when you go into more of the human violence, specifically like the hammering, and then obviously there's a lot of people being shot in the head. There's a scene, um, you know, when Ophelia's mother walks in and she's got blood dripping down all over her dress. There's some really shockingly uncomfortable visuals in this film. Yeah, and I think it's really important because that really plays into her escapism uh, mantra because obviously we were, we honestly probably do see more horrific and heinous acts done by humans than we do by the fantastical mm. creatures um, in the mythical, these, these um, um, fantasy creatures. But um, we, you know, there's always that sense of encroaching danger while Ophelia is in the more in the, you know, in the more surreal, magical world. But um, we definitely have more overt horrors of war, which sort of contribute to why she wants to escape. I mean, it's pretty tough to go past that wine-beating scene, for sure. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's some violence in this movie. <laughs> he's he, it's, it, it's interesting because it would be interesting to discuss, or at least consider do these characters emulate emulate characters that are in Ophelia's direct life are these the worst traits of the three Mm. you know the three but I don't think there is that that direct a correlation there Um, no like a Wizard of Oz type thing I think you're right yeah I'm not too sure um, I think honestly these characters come from they are representations of maybe uh, the society she's been brought up in, this, this Spanish Civil War society, the rise of fascism, um, and it's her way of rationalising it through darker story tales. Um, uh, I mean, the the pale man actively pursues her because she takes a piece of food, which is, you know, directed to her disobedience. The fawn and the, ra- turns the on rations when, as well, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the fawn turns on her when she's disobedient and is only uh, helpful and insightful when she's doing exactly what he says, which could be connected to the fascist sort of ideology um, and the, the vindictive nature of Vidal. Uh, I couldn't tell you about the toad, though, <laughs> but that would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, that was some sort of, um, I don't know, selfishness, and this is off the top of my head, of course, but like the fact that he sort of the frog ends up like yakking and almost exploding because of overconsumption. Maybe there's uh, something there again with the rations. I don't know. 
yeah. Well, yeah. Well, before we, uh, the one last thing I want to talk about with the sort of the the special effects and the visual effects and all of that, uh, and sort of how it leans between the the fantasy and then the realism. I actually loved, particularly when he has to stitch the big scar off his face, and again, how long the shot holds on that effect of him putting this stitch through. What's probably a prosthetic, but a really good looking mm-hmm. prosthetic. Yeah. I really appreciate it. An uncomfortable that. prosthetic. <laughs> just just a little slight one. It's, um, it's as bad as um Michael Shannon's spear fishing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess I guess now's a good time to talk about sort of the, the journey that, that we end on. So like I like I said earlier, and we talked about this a little bit. I was sort of trying to find, other than just like the 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 simple fact of juxtaposing these two different tones and worlds, what was the connective tissue to the whole thing? Um, for me, so the line that I was referring to earlier is when you know he walks out, he's all like cut up and bleeding, but he's he's got his baby, he's got his son, mm-hmm. and he comes up to that whole crowd, and he basically is like, "Oh, you know, take my watch." tell my son what time that I died. It's sort of this legacy thing. And she replies, no, he won't even know your name. And I think that for me was the connective tissue because so much of the journey that Philia goes on, that's part of it is like, she won't be immortal. If she, you know, she eats the fruit and now she's being, you know, scolded by Fawn of saying like, you're not going to be immortal again. You would die and over time will be forgotten and I thought that was sort of the connective tissue there is that they're both in their own way achieving mortality whether or, or immortality I should say in terms of their name carrying on and I like the fact that the villain's punished by not being remembered his memory will not be passed down but you know Ophelia's will be even if you know regardless of at the end whether what she envisions is real or fake or, or we can talk about that but her selfless act at the end is what might carry her name in future generations. I thought, I thought that was the connective mm-hmm. tissue for me that made the most sense. Yeah. So with that ending, with the, when she sees her dad on the phone and everyone starts clapping, is that real or is that, is that not real? <laughs> um, I think it's obviously give or take. I think both theories um, would go against each other. If you believe in her, fantastically um, projecting this this fantasy world and trying to rationalize the the horrible world she's in, then obviously, no, she died at the hands of Vidal. And that is just sort of the Fight Club-esque ending, you could argue. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Where if if it's in Ed Norton's head or not. Um, But if we do believe in the world and they're interconnected and they're both real, which... You know, obviously there are items that directly interact between both worlds, like the dagger. Um, then that uh. is where she ended up. That was maybe that was her. Uh, that was simply her hero's journey, her trials. Um, she got a she got tri wizarded ter- uh, teleported, tri wizard cut <laughs> teleported. Yeah, and they uh, came out around the same time that Harry Potter film. So there you go. Yeah, look at me. Knowing my 2006 slash <laughs> 7. The, o- the only thing that would have made that better is if that was the one that Alfonso Cron directed, but sadly it's not. Yes. That, w- that would have been a really good tie-in right there. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, I don't even know what Inuitu was doing at the time. I think he was doing like 22 grams or Babel or something like that. Yeah, I think 22 grams. I think that's that's the one we saw the making of video, was it? That was in class, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I've I seen 22 grams. That. 21 grams? It's one of them. Oh, maybe it it's is a, 21. It's, a, it's an amount of grams. Yeah, and it came out in 2003, so a, a little early, but nevertheless mm. still... Sort of on time, which is good. <laughs> um, for me, I think it's interesting because the more I think about it, the more I actually think that ending is fake. I think initially I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. no, this is the natural thing. and But the more I think about it, maybe it is her telling herself that that sacrifice was the final test. Um, the fact that the last note we see on uh, is when Vidal walks in and, and you know the fawn is not there. She's talking to herself, essentially. I mean, there's a lot of clues specifically at the end there that yeah tell me you're right that this is all part of sort of some psychological makeup that she's 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 trying to replace the real world with this fantasy world and the fact that when the fawn comes in earlier and says like oh i've decided to forgive you i want to give you one last chance to do this third task my initial thinking was oh he's only doing this because her brother's born now that this uh, the whole time this was mm-hmm. all about the younger brother and that now that the brother's born he can come in and do this final test that involves the brother, which technically does. But the more I think about it and the more that I lean towards this sort of not not being real, quote-unquote, that at this point in, in Ophelia's journey, she's at, like, the deepest, deepest low. Her mother is dead. Um, everyone around her is slowly dying. Like, the authoritarians are closing in on her. Um, and she dies. She gets shot and dies at the end. <laughs> It's, it's completely yeah. tragic. <laughs> I mean, the the fawn's point of, of giving the brother to be killed um, could be her way of sort of psychologically rationalising that if she kills her brother, then Vidal's lineage completely dies because Vidal was going to die. Mm. And with the death of the brother, there lies no her- you know hereditary there and... And that would mean that Ophelia would actually be the only one that could carry the family legacy forward. Um, so it's almost like a way of maybe potentially using this magical realism to rationalise, well, if she killed her brother, it, although a selfish act could save her solely off the back the fact there is no legacy left in the family mm. um, because mother's dead. Um, obviously, she doesn't do that. So... Uh, but all's, you're right, rationalising. Okay. Yeah, rationalising it. Um, but yeah, not a happy note to finish on. No, <laughs> that's a very dark film, but I mean, that's the genius of it, like the interweaving of like these horrible, just everything that's so horrible that's happening around it, like the magical the magical element, but it, it only shields it for so long, I reckon. This is just a really kind of depressing film, to be honest. That's... <laughs> no. Well, Jake, to finish this depressing conversation, yep. shall we move into highlights? <laughs> we might as well to get something out of it. <laughs> um, it's probably a bit of a cheat, but it has to be the pale man. We've talked about the scene already. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's paced so well. Yeah, it's a brilliant sense of tension. You have a literal ticking clock in the form of the... um, the what's, what, what the hell is it called? The time little sand time how am i forgetting what's called hourglass hourglass oh my goodness yeah so you have like the literal ticking time there in terms of like a tension builder and um 
The only thing, I kind of wish they made it more clear why she just wanted to take some of that fruit. I think it was more out of uh, disobedience towards the fawn's instructions. The fact mm. that the whole world around her is telling her what to do. Okay. And it's that immature child rebellion. Yeah, that's... And, yeah, but that's not fair fully enough. comprehending that actions have consequence. Well, that's... It's, which it's, is it's a, a huge consequence, yeah. A, well, yeah, and that's a that's a very normal thematic uh, part of, of folklore and, and fairy tales. And I, I think it's important to consider that she loves fairy tales and folklores, but fairy tales and folklores were often used on kids as cautionary tales for misdemeaning or misbehaviour. So um, her being told these tales or using these tales to imitate and cope with the world around her, um, it's like creating a monster that eats the he- uh, heads of children, you know, kills children yeah, yeah. explicitly, disobedient children. That, that couldn't be more, though grim, more anecdotal and, and almost directly uh, in comparison to uh, folk traditional folklores and fairy tales. Yeah. It's very Goldilocks-esque, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, the darker but... version. Yeah, exactly. Even even darker, believe it or not. Um, with that, well... Yeah, we're, it's we're, a pretty tough... Yeah. It's it's tough to go past that scene. Yeah. It's the like... final ultimatum scene between the fawn, Vidal, and Ophelia is also very... But that luminescent blue-green is... Yeah, beautiful. A really Light. strong and powerful scene. And I think the the Fawn's character converse, uh, construction is just such a remarkable um, feat of physical cinema. And I'm guessing it was mostly practical. Like, that definitely wasn't... It was. Seen. Yeah. Apparently, the horns weighed 10 pounds, and that was <laughs> the last thing to put on. Jesus Christ, yeah. I'd buy it. That makes so. sense to me. <laughs> no worries well Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth is currently only out on YouTube for rent or purchase or in wide release in stores yeah you can't stream this anywhere which is a bit annoying before we move on real quick I will read out because I actually wrote all of the Guillermo del Toro films that are like available for streaming of course we covered him as a director's corner so I'll quickly go through them now um, if you got Stan or Binge you actually have been trying now, like, there you go. So you can watch Mimic, which I think is a 1997 film that he did. I watched Hellboy 2004, of course, on Stan. And then, like you mentioned, this is only available to rent or buy on YouTube, uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, you've also got Pacific Rim, which is on Stan and Binge as well. You've got Crimson Peak, which is on Netflix and Stan. And then both The Shape of Water and Nightmare Alley. Obviously, his latest film is on Disney+. Plus. So there you go. Yeah, no worries. Well, speaking of streaming platforms and cinemas, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? So coming to Netflix this week, you have A Windfall, which is a man breaking into a tech billionaire's empty vacation home. But things go sideways when he, him and his wife arrive for a last-minute getaway. Stars Jason Segal, Lily Collins, and the Oscar-nominated Jesse Plemons. I needed to get that in there. Mm. Oscar-nominated Jesse Plemons. <laughs> Sounds like a fun time. Uh, ah, it's yeah. I have no idea what to think of it. We'll see. We'll see when it's out. Um, I have no idea how that Ryan Reynolds film is doing from last week, where he he's like his younger self he meets back in time. It sounds like it's doing well, which upsets me. But <laughs> <laughs> oh god, do we remember what that was called? Because I kind of want to look it up right now. 
Mm, I, I can have a quick gaze. There's no way I'm going to remember what this is. Unless, of course, I look up Free Guy. And then I click on Free Guy. And then I click on Ryan Reynolds. And then I click on... Oh, God, he's done a lot of other movies, hasn't he? <laughs> oh, The Adam Project. It's called The Adam Project. Oh, it has a 3.1 on Letterboxd. There you go. 3.1. That is a... Point one less than the Last Jedi. Take that for what you will. <laughs> um, coming to stand this week, you got Chinatown, Zoolander Two, Short Term Twelve, which that's actually from um, Destin Daniel Cretton, who also did Just Mercy and the Shang Chi MCU film. And finally, I'm excited about this. Swiss Army Man. It's coming to stand. Watch this bloody film. Oh, there you go. That's it's- gonna. <laughs> It's the one Paul Dano appreciation hour. Exactly, exactly. Now that film's incredible. And I want to say this. So the two guys, the two Dans who directed Swiss Army Man, they just put a film out called Everything Everywhere All at Once um, that premiered at South by Southwest. And it is exploding right now. That film is doing killings. So I'm very, very excited for that. Um, and I still got to watch Lon Dick as well. Um which is their other film they did since Wasami Man. Coming to Disney+, Plus, you've got The Eyes of Tammy Faye. You've got an all-new original Cheaper by the Dozen film. And I reckon you'll be pretty excited about the Zig. All the Marvel Netflix properties, so three seasons of Daredevil, two seasons of Punisher, three seasons of Jasper, jo- Jasper Jones. I meant Jessica Jones. <laughs> I wrote three seasons of Jasper Jones. Um, two seasons of Luke Cage. Two seasons of Iron Fist and the Defenders all come to Disney Plus this week. Are you excited about that, Zeke? Yeah, look, I've been meaning to get back into Daredevil and watch Punisher, but um, so does that mean they're just off Netflix completely now, or they will be? I in... think so. Yes. Wow. I guess it expired. I don't mind yeah. Disney Plus, but boy, that that switching episodes uh, screen is a pain in the butt. When it's like, oh, you want to watch the next episode in twenty seconds, and you're like, why do I need twenty seconds? <laughs> oh, is that is that a Disney Plus thing? Yeah, yeah. I noticed um, when I was watching Malcolm in the Middle, it was on my tablet because I was just in bed. I was feeling like crap, so I was like, I'll just watch it on the tablet, and it was not coming up with the like skip to next episode. So I would watch mm. the whole credits roll over, and then it would just freeze, and I have to like back out onto the menu and then manually click episode two, episode three. It was really weird. Very frustrating. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, anyway, that, that's the main stuff coming to streaming. I didn't run anything for Prime, Binge, Paramount, whatever. In fact, we're probably going to actually cancel our Apple TV Plus subscription this week because we, our year free subscription just ran out. So now they're charging us. So we're probably just going to get rid of it. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yep. And coming to cinemas, we have Dog, which stars Channing Tatum and, and a dog. That's the movie. Sounds riveting. <laughs> I've been making fun You've of this sold me. for weeks. I've gone oh, good. I'm glad. That, that's all the poster did to sell me. Oh, look, it's Channing Tatum and a dog. Jesus. And it's called Dog. <laughs> didn't lose any brain cells on that one, did they? <laughs> they certainly didn't gang any either, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, come in Hoyts as well this week. They're actually doing preview screenings for the new A24 film, X which sees a group of filmmakers in 1979 set out to make an adult film in rural Texas, which turns into a desperate fight for their lives when their reclusive elderly hosts catch them in the act. 
Um, this is kind of giving me like Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibes, kind of like more mm-hmm. recently the scary of sixty first, like very cheap horror, but like I I reckon it could be very good, very good slasher. That, that's the vibe I'm getting from it. So mm, it's a bit spicy. Yeah, and I'm surprised that that's Hoyt's doing that, not Luna. That's, that's very surprising oh, okay. to me. Yeah. Oh well, who cares? Um, Napoleon. In the Name of Art is a documentary that explores the famous explorer and his complex relationship with both art and culture. I know friend of the show, Stephen, is bloody so ready for this doco. Um, and, and Joaquin Phoenix, of course, is going to play Napoleon very soon, so that's exciting. Um, mm, and it is quite exciting. Yeah. And finally, Luna are doing special screenings for the Disney Plus series, The Beatles Get Back, this Wednesday the 16th. And this Sunday, the 20th, they're doing back-to-back screenings. Or maybe they're playing at the same time. I don't know how it works. But they're playing The Room and The Princess Bride. So Sunday, the 20th of March. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good film paired with The Room. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I knew you were going to make a comment about that. I knew you were going to be like, why are you comparing those two together? <laughs> it's just an odd comparison. Yeah. It's like you had to have a date. Like It's like the weirdest date night ever. You're like, let's go watch this really bad movie and then this really nice romantic film. <laughs> that could work. I mean, the room is romantic in its own way, Zeke. In its own way. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, that is indeed tearing me apart. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Um, i got to take you one of those. I've been to a room screening twice, which they were, they're a lot of fun. Like, I don't know if you yeah, really would love to go see one. Yeah. I I no, well, that's it. That's it. It's going to be good. Um, that's it. That's it. Coming in uh, streaming in cinemas this week. No dramas. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show. You actually mentioned what we were already catching on the show, I Jake. I did, yeah. But, Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Nightmare Alley. Step right up in the hole, one of the unexplained mysteries of the universe. Is he man or beast? This creature has been examined by the foremost scientists and pronounced unequivocally a man. I am prepared to offer you folks one last chance to witness this supreme oddity. Where did it come from? Begotten by the same lust and threat that got us all walking on this earth, but gone wrong somehow in the maternal womb. Not fit for living. Is it a beast? Or is it a man? <laughs> Because tonight, you will see him feed. Come on in and find out. Is he man or beast? An ambitious carnival man with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words, hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. Spicy. So one Guillermo del Toro film to another. Mm. Uh, Exactly. Very exciting stuff. 
I haven't seen really anything except a trailer maybe a couple months back. Yeah, I saw the trailer that where Willem Dafoe narrates over it. It's a bit of a teaser. Um, apparently he's not in it much, but I'm hearing good things. I think I think Jesse Newell, friend of the show, I think he, I think he thinks this film's excellent, excellent, excellent. Oh, very exciting stuff. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Nightmare Alley. Woo!